Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Strains it signals another beginning of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO, a very special edition as I, Nikki Dakota, your host, am joined in the studio today and live and in person, none other than J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Hello, Nikki Dakota. Storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers and friend to all the big stars. We are so honored to have you live today. The honor and pleasure is all mine. And I'll tell you who else, <laughs> live via video phone, I'm I telling tried. you what. We are getting filmically, perfectly, amazingly technology up to the minute. It is the Film Archivist Nitrate Film Division for the Library of Congress, Mr. George Williman. George, welcome, and thank you for being here. Hey, cool cat, but shake it. We are shaking it with a little hairspray, make to be some tail feathers shaking on down the road. And uh, we are brought here today for a very special reason. And, and keep in is- mind, folks, that George is a nitrate specialist. Think about that. And now he's talking on this iChat device over a little teeny wire. This goes from nitrate photography to his glorious mug on digital pixelated. <laughs> we are looking at George on a computer Amazing. screen. It really is how far we've come. Welcome to uh, the 21st century, George. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me. Do you I think all those people that were shooting that nitrate would ever dream that you could send a picture, this kind of signal, this quickly? They were probably surprised you could get a picture on a piece of film. Yeah. (laughs) We are gathered here today to celebrate the notion of such a thing as a perfect movie. That is a movie that manages to pass some pretty strict criteria, and those are uh, the filmically perfect rules. We should take a moment to remind our listeners what exactly these are. Gentlemen, are you ready? Now, I know you're going to find this hard to believe. (laughs) But? (laughs) Hairspray creates the world it exists in. And, and it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, Hairspray retains its meaning and entertainment value. And like all the other movies on our list, and unlike movies on other lists, Hairspray will never be put in any sort of numerical order. Always it, can stand on its own two feet. That's exactly right. It's also worth mentioning that rule number, is it five? It's five. That if I do not like it, does indeed invoke rule number six. And that is... That is... <laughs> <laughs> I have to say <laughs> that I'm right with you on this one. Certainly, uh, I believe that it follows the rules, and I have to say that it is an exceptionally good view. It is a good time, this movie, Hairspray. The odd premise of this movie is is that it, <laughs> very much like an airplane that's, that's tied into a nosedive, it never comes out. <laughs> and But it doesn't crash. It crashes hard, but... As you know, it didn't crash too hard because they have a Broadway show with John, John Travolta playing the Ricky Lake part. What? They're, I they, didn't realize that. No, John, no, John, John Travolta is playing the, the divine role. Divine role. Well, oh, makes well. My apologies. Close in a strange way. But, but still, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling that this movie could come around the block so many times it's bumping into itself because they're making it as a movie again. So it, so it was made as a movie, and, and I, is it 1988 was the uh, the year that this was originally released? Correct. 
And then subsequently, it is a presence on Broadway. And then, though, they're remaking the movie, but based on the Broadway production, <laughs> correct? Right. How bizarre. That's just, I don't know how many times you can reskin an animal and use it again. <laughs> you know, it's just. And here's the, here's the thing is, when it came out, everybody believed that, everybody believed that, uh, John Waters was, yes. was probably the most tasteless individual to ever make a movie. Uh, and, and and they said, how could this be topped? Well, it never was really topped. They just went out and made a Broadway show of itself <laughs> and then made a movie they of itself They like, just variegated it and then it spawned more. So let's talk for a moment. Uh, George, who is our, our, our sort of pathfinder to exactly how... Uh, how it is that we uh, recognize the action of a movie. Uh, George has this amazing mind, very much like a steel trap, but with all the uh, the uh, the accoutrements and bells and whistles. And exactly what is this movie about? Well, this movie is about Baltimore in 1962. And keep in mind, folks, George will chew his own leg off to get out of a trap. <laughs> <laughs> when you're listening to this, leg, like though. the summary, remember, he will chew his own leg off to get out of a trap. <laughs> But uh, it's Baltimore, 1962, and the most popular kids' TV show is this thing called the Corny Collins Show, which basically looks like American Bandstand. Um, the kids get on, they dance. Uh, kids can be chosen to be on this court where they're kind of like celebrities for a day. Um, and interestingly enough, the show is, and the TV station is segregated. Only Only whites are allowed on the shows except for like the last Thursday of every month is as they term it, Negro Day, and they let uh, they let they let black people on the show. So uh, a young girl named Tracy Turnblad, played by uh, Ricky Lake, uh, gets on the show and wows the the producers, and actually is is brought in to be on the court, and um, and basically finds tries to work a way to get the show uh, segregated. Which is interesting because we're dealing integrated. We're dealing with a couple of sort of stereotypes. There's the the race issues. Then there's also the fact that uh, that uh, the Ricky Lake character is overweight. So, yeah. but nobody which, ever says they just say, "Wow, she's really good." Nobody right. ever, nobody ever singles her out because she's a little overweight. They just say, "Wow, she's really good," and she just charges in there, and all of a sudden she's the best person. Uh, on the whole dance floor. Yeah. Well, you kind of see that in in other John Waters movies too. He often has characters that are are like physically odd or even repugnant, but but everybody likes them. Um, for those who have seen Polyester, you know that was the, the Smellovision one, wasn't it? Where when yeah. you went and saw the movie, they handed out a card that you scratch and sniff. <laughs> Ironically, that's what everybody remembers uh, about John Waters' movies. And, and fortunately, they don't have to remember Pink Flamingos. That's right. <laughs> Which that's... was made in Pink Flamingos before or after Hairspray? Pink Flamingos is very early. It's like okay. 72, oh, shot wow. on 16 millimeter, very, very rough, almost it's probably deliberately, the most deliberately in, bad. The most, indelible, the most indelible stamp of bad taste um, that you could ever possibly even think of a movie. Even to this day, I think uh, that that movie's probably on our um, almost on our perfect list movie list because it's so incredibly bad and tasteless. Uh, <laughs> well, I recently saw um, his the movie he followed that one up with, which is Female Trouble, and that one runs a close second. That one is in, is also an incredibly tasteless movie, but it's also absolutely hysterical. <laughs> yeah, John Waters is uh, you know, and a lot of things. 
you always seem to remember him by is that great smoking ad that he did in the movie theater where he inhales all the smoke and he, the smoking he tells you to is. smoke and it's just it's... he's telling you to smoke Isn't that right george no yeah but no basically he's saying that he says that you know that i'm here to tell you there's no smoking in this theater but wouldn't you enjoy a cigarette right now oh and that's bad big, big, huge inhale that really is fun. so bad honestly i don't think anybody else could have gotten away with it besides john waters you know? well he's certainly a, a, a sort of a character he almost has the sort of cult of personality that maybe uh uh suddenly i'm drawing a blank the campbell soup guy can oh, andy, warhol. Uh, andy warhol that he just can almost get away with anything because his art is so sort of odd and bizarre but let's talk a minute about how the setting for this movie he, he takes great attention to detail in setting this sort of uh is it early 60s scenario it's yeah. This is like this is when Alan Freed was officially, you know, sent away and no more heavy rock and roll. And what you're hearing there is the, it's like the Dick Clark kind of rock and roll. Kind of um, purified rock and yeah, roll. Yeah, the, the the cleansed palette rock and roll that Dick Clark had around until the Beatles hit, of course. And right. remember Changed some everything. Of, well, yeah, a lot of times in the movies we the movies we have we have reviewed always have that amazing thought line of nineteen sixty four in them when things change. When we're dealing with the nineteen sixties, that is. Yeah, um, that's right. We talked about the Jerry Lewis movie, uh, uh, the Nutty Professor that uh, had its own cool up until the Beatles hit, and then all that uh, changed. This is a hundred percent before the Beatles, and John Waters just nails it to a T. Uh, a lot of times, production designers will, uh, when they're thinking back, they'll overdo it. They'll put too many flowers on a bus, or they have too many people, or just hippie hippie eyes, you know. But um, John Waters got real close to the edge of of, uh, of the nineteen sixty four. Rules on this, don't you think, George? Yeah, and, and it's very interesting that when he wants to make a point or he has a really pointed <laughs> satirical note, he will go like way up. He'll go over the top. Way over the of, top. I'm thinking of the scene with the Beatniks, yeah. who are played by Pia Zadora and Rick Ocasek. Yeah, how and they're funny. completely silly. I mean, it's just a total caricaturization of, of the Beatniks. And his the father, you know, that has the joke store is. Mr. Novelty, who is... Which is Jerry Stiller, Jim Ben Stiller's dad, yeah. He's completely over the top a lot of times, and that's that's him taking one of those big mallets and racking it over your head and saying, ding, ding, Oh, yeah, but it's like parents always seem to... I don't know what kind of a relationship John Waters had with his parents, but if it's any indication from his movies, I don't know how good it was, because, like, the... I mean, Edna. Edna we can is guess. Interesting character, but she's kind of rough on her daughter. And and then the uh, the other girl, the the challenging girl, the Van Tussels, uh, whose, whose mother's played, played by Debbie Harry. Debbie Harry with the most outrageous hair you've ever seen. And, and the famous Sonny Bono, Sonny Bono and, as her father. They, again, you know, whereas Divine's character of Edna is somewhat played a little more low key and somewhat realistically, the Van Tussels are totally over the top. And, and, they're and totally... the station owner, played by Divine, is completely over the top. Yeah, the station owner, who's like this horrible racist, looks like something out of the Huey Long story. And, that, <laughs> and that's Divine, right? Yeah, that's, that's Divine he, playing he the other plays character. Himself he plays himself. He did several I mean, times. Yeah. We're talking about Hairspray on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYSO. As being a perfect movie, I, I will give you that it creates the world. It's worth mentioning that in Baltimore at the time, in uh, John Waters' young upbringing, this was a six-day-a-week show. He's actually patterning this after his own upbringing, his own experience as a young man. And this went on. People, what people don't realize, I mean, most younger audiences... <laughs> 
Uh, they they don't realize, <laughs> and I was a very doing? small child, uh, live television was how they filled the airtimes. And one of the ways they did it was by having these crazy insipid dance parties every week. Um, and sometimes they had them outside around swimming pools, and they had a local DJ who was very popular, just like this movie. And he would he would spin the platters, and this is what they had. They filled television with live television with uh, with these crazy shows. It was kind of a virtual community before there was an internet because people would uh, would stop by and send telegraphs. I mean, that was for real. Send would tell, send a telegram in to ask such and such a couple to dance the lead. So one of the one of the leaders on that was Dick Clark and his bandstand thing, and and everybody just kind of followed suit. I think I'm not so sure who was first uh but i know that everybody did it and i think bandstand was one of the first ones to do it nationally from philadelphia um, i believe you're right yes and, uh, i'm sure there were others uh there was one out of washington called Tinarama, which was actually the, the first dance show for african-american kids is and that there's right really, there's a, a really name. great documentary that was on uh just a few months ago called the Tinarama story where they talk about this show and i i think I remember hearing that that this show was somewhat of an inspiration for John Waters in the making of uh, of Hairspray. So uh, certainly it uh, creates the world. And as far as sustaining it, I have to say that the music in this uh, movie goes a long way toward that. What great tunes! Yeah, and I mean, I think I think there's a few of them that were written for the movie, and a lot of them that were purchased for the movie. But the the recreations are are like spot on. I mean, it took me a while to really try and guess which ones were. New and which ones were old. The, one of the one of the only things that I I did not see that that they didn't really get quite right was um, a few years back we did this movie uh, I did this movie with George Clooney called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and we had to look at all the old bandstand tapes because we emulated that George excuse me emulated that in the show and he didn't like to use actors portraying uh, like Dick Clark so you would see Dick Clark on the television. And then you would uh, see another person out of focus. It would be Dick Clark. But my point is, is that I could not believe how terribly awful the artwork was on those shows. They were cardboard with speckles on it. <laughs> and and John Sales, or excuse me, not John Sales. I'm really sorry, I messed that up. Um, John Waters. His set looks really good, man. That is so maybe it's these... a little too good. Yeah, I oh, mean, yeah, most yeah, of those old sets were really rickety looking, but his is very, very clean and. Of course, you wouldn't know that unless you went back and looked at some of those old tapes like I had. And I thought, I remember we would watch those. We thought, wow, the art is really bad on these shows. You know? Yeah, old old bandstands are amazing because, yeah, the sets are the, as cheap as they could possibly get without them just falling over. <laughs> <laughs> they probably did fall over. It, it, it looks, like some, looks like one of your kids, Nikki, the kindergarten <laughs> things hanging. I'm not kidding. It was really – then you see John, John Sayles' take on this, and it just – John looks, Waters. You ah, I did it again. <laughs> My apologies. Right. Um, John Waters' take on on this and it's real pristine and real colorful and the colors all balanced. So maybe he uh, created the world in which it exists a little bit too well. But well, I, I think a lot of it again, you know, uh, John Waters is like the one of the main proponents of Baltimore. I mean, almost all of his films take place in Baltimore, if not all of them. And this being sort of a, a dream piece, a remembrance of, of Baltimore past, I think he very deliberately makes it a little more colorful than it was. You know, the the show this is how he remembers things looking. Sure. Well, that's artistic license, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, what's interesting here is all of a sudden I was 
kind of suddenly aware that Baltimore had a past after watching this movie. Balta what? <laughs> well, it's interesting. They had the Orioles and they they got they used to have the Colts until they moved out in the middle of the night. And what yeah, is this town? That, yeah. and all of a sudden, John Waters is speaking hey, reverently about this. Prince past did it of for Baltimore. Minneapolis. The boss it's does it. There for are New there are actually. I mean, there are two major filmmakers who both are from Baltimore and do films on Baltimore. And John Waters is one. And the other one is Barry Levinson. And, and George, like, what are his films? Uh, like Diner, Tin Man, oh, uh, Tin yeah. Man Avalon, and um, so so you know Rain Man, and Rain Man. Yeah. Although that one does not take place in Baltimore. No, but he uh, he used to hit Baltimore pretty heavy, and between those two guys, all of a sudden Baltimore was hip happening place in the '60s and '70s. Well, and the one thing is, I think you know Barry Barry Levinson's films all had this sort of almost mystical approach to Baltimore, you know, kind of misty and. And remembrance, and then, but I think John Waters, with his kind of crazy cockeyed look at Baltimore, is probably a little more to the way it was. Yeah, or John is. Waters definitely has that paddling machine effect. Yeah. You know, with his <laughs> movies on Baltimore. We're talking about Hairspray on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO, 1988 film that uh, at least helped us glimpse into the past of Baltimore. And is it worth talking about Divine and his strange Absolutely, existence? man. Yeah. Divine was great. Honestly, Divine was just one of the greatest actors on the screen, don't you think, George? He was, and he was a, a friend. He a, it's a, a she, Buster. Is a she? Yeah, I think he was a. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was a, a school friend of John Waters. Is what is even it, George? Cooler was, than not only is it about Baltimore, but he actually uses the people and friends that he came up. Divine with. was was Divine a he or a she? A he. So he born a he, but I think that there's there's more no, to I, it than that. No, I don't think so. No, I think okay. Just, I don't think he ever had any sort of surgery or anything like yeah. that. I think he always just was he. Does um, that guy? Does that since he's a he? Does that guy command presence on the screen when he's up there? Huh? Yeah. I mean, that guy really knows how to swing, doesn't he? <laughs> He played uh, the main character's mother, he did, yep. uh, with uh, with Jerry Stiller as the father, and really did a convincing, uh, credible job. And uh, I have to say that he, uh, he didn't live much longer than this, did he? He was... Uh... He passed away in... Yeah, he passed away the same year, 1988. Wow. Uh, he died from uh, respiratory failure. Oh, heavens my. So this was his last... Uh, his swan song, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. He sure cut a groove on the screen, though. Uh, you know... George and I were talking earlier, and some of these actors that work for John Waters, they just kind of disappear, like Leslie Ann Powers, who's the, the cute girl that can dance in this movie. She just disappeared. We don't know what happened to her. Yep. Friends of his, is that it? Probably, again, more people that, or the more Baltimoreites that he got into his movies. There's something I want to say. Um, I was uh, uh, an exchange student in, uh, uh, I happened to find myself in London when the... Uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood was really, really popular, and we just gotten over there, and uh, the uh, Relax video for the Frankie Goes to Hollywood prominently featured Divine, and uh, we were over there, and I had just seen Polyester, and went over and saw this, and I thought, who is this person, and then uh, come to find out uh, more fully that... Uh, he is divine, and uh, indeed. So uh, interesting. And uh, did he have much work divine beyond the work with John Waters? Or uh, he had a couple of things. He was in uh, Lust in the Dust, which I believe <laughs> that was with Tab by. Hunter. That's that what... with Tab Hunter, yeah. Paul Bartel well, what's movie. That? <laughs> yeah. And he's okay. in uh, Trouble in Mind, which is um, an Alan Rudolph film. But yeah, the majority of his stuff is with uh, with his old buddy John Waters. 
So, um, and they must have had a really good working relationship because, I mean, how many people could get an actor to pick up dog excrement off the sidewalk and eat it? I mean, that's the finale of, of Pink Flamingos. Basically. Oh, heavens. Well, yeah, you got to trust somebody. We're not here to disturb you about <laughs> Pink Flamingos. We're here to disturb you about Hairspray. The sequel of Hairspray and the, and the, the show of Hairspray. So has, has any of us actually seen, I haven't, uh, have you gentlemen seen I, uh, anything about no. the Broadway production? Do we know anything about the movie that's coming out? No, but I sure am glad that George straightened me out on the fact that John Travolta uh, Is plays not. the divine part, not the Ricky Lake part. <laughs> Right. You know, Ricky Lake had quite a spin in the talk show circuit after this movie. That's right. What? And she was very, very good in this movie. She There's some really fabulous dancing in this picture. They're on their toes doing a very genre kind of based dance, and it's just fun to watch because it they're is. so good. And she went on as as a very popular... She was rivaling Oprah, I think, at one time. But but were there, was, was there any more film work for her particularly? Because I don't yeah, remember yeah, she's, any. Uh, she's in Crybaby, which is... Uh, Another John Waters. A great movie. Great movie. And after yeah. Crybaby, I think, is when she went on her diet and lost all of her weight. Yeah. Which is the second time show. or the third time? She I'm sorry, what? The second time or the third time? Second, third time. Well, much sure. like her talk show uh, yeah. cohort, Oprah, she's uh, she's uh, gained and lost. But uh, you yeah, haven't heard much from her for uh, a while. No, but no, my no, my guess while. is you'll hear something from her soon when this uh, sequel of Hairspray is resurrected. I guess so. Uh, well, not now, resurrected. I guess it's a new movie. So. An interesting local note for, for Ohio is that one of the actresses in the new version of Hairspray is from Dayton. Oh. Allison Janney. Oh, how about that? Who has uh, went it, on to do fabulous work uh, and, and a lot of marvelous movies as a right. very serious actress. She's playing uh, Tracy's friend's mother, the one who... Uh, Debbie Harry's character? No, not Debbie Harry. I, I can't remember the actress. Oh, the, the mother that was so strict. And, the, uh, the crazy mother who makes her wear the big P on her shirt. <laughs> Even though her... Punished. For P, for being punished, although her first and last name both start with P, so I yeah. think the whole effect is lost in that. But John Waters, known for his completely offbeat humor, just oh, really... Oh, it's, it's got... That offbeat is more than just a pattern, man. <laughs> it's, that offbeat is, is, is only John Waters. You could... I dare say, George, I mean, I dare say this very seldom. You could watch about five seconds of this movie and know instantly that it was a John Waters picture if you had not seen yeah, this movie and you've seen all the other John Waters. He has such, he does everything with style. That's, right. uh, and, that's and the guy saving his, grace for everything. He gets his actors, his actors to act. I mean, seriously act in a very strange <laughs> patterns. I mean, their speech patterns are strange. Um, Not to mention the eye lines in some of this show, boy. I tell you the way. And by eye line, you mean as opposed the camera as in relation to the face of the person. Occasionally, they'll just go on an eye line uh, binge where they're just they're saying something, but they, he's moved it so subtly you didn't notice that he's yeah. moved the eye line. You know, all of a sudden you're saying, "Why does this feel uncomfortable?" <laughs> <laughs> Like Deborah Harry and the bomb in her head. It's no, there, there's no. That's no surprise that they had to recompose the frame size from right. you know 185 to 166 and use some doorways to keep that thing in there because it's, it's so tall. And, the hair is memorable. Yeah, and and then you start to say it's 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 the hair, man. That's what's odd about this thing because you don't right. realize that well, he has composed like, things. Like like the hair, like the the big wig at the end is that it's it's totally ridiculous. <laughs> It's like something out. It's like something out of a, car, a Warner Brothers cartoon. It is, and he gets away with it. But that speaks to rule two. Nobody too. notices that really that this ridic- 
she has this ridiculous hair. <laughs> she has ridiculous hair through the whole movie, so they just don't think about it. But it gets ridiculous. Or, which speaks the rule, too. So it uh, creates the rule and sustains it. You sort of get sucked in, and there you are. The hair gets bigger and bigger and more outrageous. And you would never, if you saw someone walking down the street, you would actually be shocked. But he's 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 laid it out in such a we're way that you're We're in John Waters' right world, and we're, we're very comfortable. They look at each, you can just see people who are looking at the show kind of crazy, and they look at each other and just say, it's a John Waters picture. It's a John Waters. <laughs> oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> It's filmically perfect on 91.3 WYSO, and we're talking about Hairspray. Golly, 20 years almost uh, yeah. since it came out. So Rule 1 creates it, certainly sustains it, and as far as despite uh, any changes in society and culture, it definitely retains its meaning. So well, again, I'll give it to you. That's one thing that amazed me about it. I mean, being John Waters and how most of his early films just seem to be designed to shock, this one actually does have a, a serious message about, about segregation. And at the end, when you see the, the segregationists outside the, the television station, he portrays them as these almost demonic, filthy, grotesque people. Who are... and, to, and to mix that sort of thing in, in this absurdity, I don't know of any studio in their right mind, even nowadays, would they'd say, oh, wait a minute, this isn't hairspray meets hairspray meets hairspray. They, I don't think that you could get away with it even now. Well, I, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really interesting to see in this new one if they can keep the sort of tartness of the message uh, that he has in this film. And it's amazing to think to say, you know, that John Waters actually made a film with a message. <laughs> it does. If, if, if for nothing else, it really does have a, a quite an amazing message. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. It's sort of like, you know, uh, what if, uh, what's the, the Mel Brooks one that was the... The producer. The, the producers. It was a movie, and then now it's Broadway. Well, they did the Sunset Boulevard, and uh, I don't think that's made it to a sequel yet, but they made that on Broadway, Sunset Boulevard. Um, it's just... This, this, this evil new uh, Death Star that's saying <laughs> any classic perfect movies on Jay Todd and George's list must die. I'm waiting for the musical version of uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. <laughs> yeah. It's just to be called it with big letters, just Klaatu, with a big exclamation point at the end. George, George Bush and, and, uh, and Dick will be dancing, you know, or else whoever the administration is at that time. Yeah. Uh, gosh, gentlemen, we are quickly running out of time. Uh, we've been talking about hairspray uh, on Filmically Perfect here on We know you're going to throw rocks at us, folks, but it's still on our you know perfect movie list. It, it really is. It has its own legs. It just walks around, does whatever it says. I'll give yep. you that. So and I also do. thought that there was a certain cute factor that I that I had not remembered from You'll the never catch year. George and I saying that. <laughs> it was cute. Oh, never. <laughs> in its own way. So listen, if you uh, have some thoughts on Hairspray or any of the perfect movies that we have reviewed here on Filmically Perfect, please stop by the website. In fact, write to the Film Guys. That's filmguys at perfectmovie.net. You can check us out on iTunes. We're on the npr.org site. We're also at wyso.org. So many ways for you to connect back. So if you have some thoughts on Hairspray or check out our list of perfect movies at perfectmovie.net and see if you have some thoughts that you can send our way. And on that note, George Williman, Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress, you are the greatest. Thank you for joining us by video phone today. I know. Thank you. <laughs> and, also, and, of course, the second greatest. Second greatest. The uh, Yes, no. <laughs> and the third greatest. The, no, 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 the janitor, go away! The fourth greatest! He is the coolest storyboard artist to all the big stars, J. Todd Anderson. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. And any, any tip of the hat for next time? Yes, next time we're heading 
to Once Italy. Upon a Time in the West. <laughs> oh, get it Spaghetti now. Land. Once Upon a Time in the West next time on Film Will Be Perfect. Gentlemen, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please. <laughs> <laughs>